I'm Erica Lynn, and we all know the ocean is the most demanding environment on Earth, consistently testing the reliability and durability of our equipment. When you spend as much time fishing as I do, you know that reliable gear is essential for staying on the water. This is why I went with Abyss Battery to power my trolling motor, electronics, and outboard. The guys at Abyss Battery are rattling the saltwater industry by manufacturing performance marine batteries specifically designed for sonar, outboards, trolling motors, and electronic fishing reels. They're also Bluetooth compatible, so I found Checking battery statuses right on your phone while you're out on the water is a huge game changer. To learn more about why Abyss batteries are used by the pros and factory installed by Premier Boat Builders, visit abyssbattery.com. Hunting boots are a critical component of any successful hunt. Whether walking a short distance to your blind or trudging miles through rugged terrain, your feet are carrying the load. Without the right boots, you could give up early and lose out on that trophy just over the ridge. At Midway USA, we make selecting boots for your next hunt easier. With just a few clicks of a mouse, you can decide on what's important, like waterproofing, insulation, size, width, and savings. For just about everything for shooting, hunting, and the outdoors, check out MidwayUSA.com. I'd like to welcome everyone to episode 12 of the Focus Hunting Podcast. Today I'm joined by Scott Ellis. Scott is the executive director of the GOABC. Scott and I discuss the outfitter industry, the impact of COVID, Annie Hunters, and a few other topics, such as the Grizzly Bear Ban. I think you guys are really going to like this episode. As always, make sure to go to the Focus Hunting webpage. We've got a lot of new gear coming out, so keep your eye on that. And a quick shout out to BC's Interior Chapter of SCI. If you guys aren't familiar with who they are and the great work they're doing, make sure you check them out. They can be found at www.bcinteriorsci.ca. Go check out all the great work that Amber Lee and the rest of the crew over there is doing. But I really think you guys are going to like this episode, so sit back, turn the rest of this intro up, and enjoy. Welcome everyone to the Focus Hunting Podcast. Today I'm joined by Scott Ellis. Scott, thanks for joining me today. Thanks, Kevin. Happy to be on. So Scott, you work for the GOABC, but before we get into that, can you tell us a bit about your background? Yeah, you bet. Um, and I guess before I, you know, into my background, a shout out to uh, who was on episode 11, Dave Ryder is an old friend of mine. So uh, it's kind of kind of funny how small the hunting community is when it gets to this kind of stuff. So yeah, I like uh, Dave. He's, uh, he's a great guy. Yeah, I knew him for about 15 years. And then we, it's funny, I'm not a big fan of uh, Facebook or divorce book or whatever you want to call it. Yeah. But yeah, he reached out to me on something. And so, so we started and reconnected. He, you know, we kind of lost touch. So hopefully we'll get together for a coffee before uh, before Christmas. But uh, yeah, awesome. Yeah, I know it's a small world for that. Uh, me, uh, my story, um, grew up in Campbell River, was uh, was a fishing guide. Uh, my dad uh, owned a fishing lodge, and so it was it was great. My um, my family grew up there. My my stepmom, my brothers, um, uh, my sister, uh, my dad, and and we we're always uh, it was just one of those things that you know you you, you fished and and that was what you did in the summertime, and and was fortunate enough to be paid for it. Paid me to go through college, and um, you know, uh, fishing industry didn't end up so good. Um, 
my dad unfortunately didn't wasn't able to sell that business to me or anyone else in the family. He had to subdivide and um, you know, and uh, do something different. And, and so I, I have that in the back of my mind, what happened to the fishing industry. And it haunts me to this day of what the commercial fleet looked like, what the sport uh, industry looked like, uh, the amount of fish that we had. And if you want to know what gets me out of bed in the morning is fear. Uh, and it's a fear that the hunting industry is going to go that way. And in some, uh, in a lot of cases, we're seeing signs of that. Yeah, I, w- I worked in the forest industry, um, supplying products to sawmills for about 15 years. Like I say, that's where I met Dave and, and many other great people got to explore, um, you know, basically most of British Columbia and Western Canada and uh, got to hunt and fish and do all kinds of stuff in different places. So um, I think fortunate that I've been able to hunt in places that maybe some people hadn't, uh, provides me a little bit of perspective on different hunting seasons and you know, I kind of came home one day and uh, I had missed another event because I was in the end there. I was traveling a lot and I was three weeks out of four in the U.S. And I had my two little kids in tears because I missed something important. I don't know what it was, but Christmas or birthday or anniversary or something. And yeah. and uh, my wife said, something needs to change. All your shit's going to be in the driveway. Sorry, I don't know if I can say shit on your okay. show. but Yeah, it's all good, brother. <laughs> so I'm like, well, I kind of like my family and my wife, so I'm going to do something different. And I opened the paper and uh, Guide Outfitters, well, we're looking for somebody. And I'm like, hmm, well, it's about all I, all I know, fishing and hunting and, uh, uh, and a little bit about the forest industry. So yep. uh, that was 12 years ago. That right. is just crazy. Just yeah. absolutely crazy how time flies. Oh man, it totally flies. So for those who don't know, what's the GOABC? Yeah, thanks, Kevin. The the, the Guide Outfitters Association of, of British Columbia is a nonprofit society uh, established in uh, 1966 to represent the guide outfitting community uh, to government and advocate for science-based decisions. Um, and I'm a registered lobbyist. And so our, our vision is, you know, a strong and stable guide outfitting industry in the province of British Columbia with uh, abundant big game populations for all uh, today and into the future. So uh, it's a bit of a mouthful, but it gives you an idea that we think about our community, but we also think about wildlife and what impacts the wildlife and not just from a hunting perspective and not just today, but it's, it's over a, a long horizon. What does, uh, what do you do with the GOABC? What's, what's uh, your title? <laughs> or do you uh, have? Is that one of many? <laughs> uh, chief cook and bottle washer. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's uh, I, I left a, a Fortune 500 company, uh, a large sales team, and a, and a support group around me. And uh, I don't know what we were—twenty-five million dollars in sales. And I went, you know, when I first came into this little nonprofit, you know, less than a million dollars in sales and a handful of staff. I thought. I mean, golfing every afternoon. This is giving me a walk in the park. And the, the, and the first thing I, I ran into was uh, an issue with uh, bears. You know, it was kind of baptism by fire. I had tried to get a hold of the minister, uh, former minister, Barry Penner, and couldn't get him and couldn't get him. And I, you know, I'm fairly determined for those of you that know me. So I kept calling, kept calling. And so a guy was answering the phone all times named Spencer Spruill. Sorry, Spencer. Uh, and it kind of felt like it was a first name basis, him and I. And then um, something broke. It was on the Haida Gwaii, I believe. You know, there was uh, protests, people upset about bear hunting and this and that, and the next thing. And and so at the time, you know, I'm you know pretty green to what this is. And I asked my my executive assistant, I said, so what's our position around dealing with the media and 
uh, and all these media requests that are flooding in. And she said, uh, no comment. And I'm like, oh, well, that's pretty easy. I said no comment to about, I don't know, eight different reporters. And then my uh, phone rings and it's Spencer. Spencer says, uh, uh, Scott, the minister wants to speak with you. And I'm like, oh, minister. And he says, uh, Scott, I'm hearing uh, no comment coming out of your office. I said, yes, sir. Yes, minister. That's, uh, that's our official position. Not anymore. <laughs> You've got two hours. Is that clear? Crystal clear, minister. He said, great. Then you can phone me back. Then we'll have a meeting. Have a nice day. Click. I'm like, oh, welcome to guide outfitting. And so, you know, became a bear biologist overnight. (laughs) (laughs) And I've been dealing with the media uh, ever since. And that'll lead into some of the things that uh, I want to talk about a little bit later. So executive director, I guess that's just a short way of saying wears a lot of hats. Uh, Yeah. Amen. Now, I read that there's... There's, uh, what, 245 outfitters in BC. Do you guys represent all the outfitters in British Columbia or do yeah, they have to be? So, so no, we don't We don't represent everybody. You have to opt in. Uh, Alberta is the only jurisdiction that is uh, mandatory membership. And in BC, we've got, uh, I don't know the numbers off the top of my head, 40 uh, outfitters that own multiple guide territories. Uh, at one time, you're only allowed to own one. Uh, and as things has transpired, you know, forced by economics and the allocation policy, uh, outfitters have bought more guide areas, invested to get bigger, uh, to get economies of scale. Uh, and so the guide area boundaries don't change. Uh, you know, we're not making any more land, uh, but, uh, you know, people are that want to stay in or buy in their neighbors are trying to get a little bigger. So we represent about 65, 70% uh, of the outfitters in the province. And we also have a strategic alliance, mostly around marketing uh, with the Yukon and the NWT. So we, the strategic alignment really has been beneficial as we work on, uh, you know, COVID issues, border issues, um, and do more federally than we've, you know, done in the past decade. The uh, outfitters that you represent, are those all hunting or is that a combination of hunting and fishing outfitters? Uh, yeah, so mostly hunting. Um, some offer both and uh, a growing number of angling guides as well. Anywhere from uh, the Fraser, uh, those guys that guide for white sturgeon or, or salmon, obviously and trout, and then all the way up through, uh, uh, you know, Terrace and Smithers for tributaries to the Skeena, for Steelhead and, and others. But for sure, the, you know, the majority would be uh, hunting outfitters. So with the fishing and hunting, what are the nuances between the two? Like, I assume most of the issues that you deal with are, are hunting issues. What type of issues do you deal with in terms of the fishing outfitting? Is it the same or? You'd be surprised. It's, it's really, really similar. There's a lot of pressure on sturgeon, uh, even though it's catch and release. There's a lot of work being done on sturgeon, pressure, political pressure on sturgeon, uh, first nations that have some concerns around that fishery. I'm really pleased, actually, that uh, for a long time that the the guides have really been involved in a tagging, kind of a measuring and tagging system for sturgeon. There's a lot of similarities, right? There's the same issues, uh, whether we're talking about predators, you know, four-legged or they swim, the same kind of issues we're talking about climate climate change and so water temperature and what's going on with you know thermal cover and snow We're talking about logging so sediment going into spawning channels or or the like and then whether we're dredging or not or what's going on and then you've got all that you know fishing hunting pressure both commercial and then guides and recreational so there's you know really a lot of overlap and at the end of the day it's the same minister it's the same deputy minister it's the same executive director so it's not t- till you get to the director of of uh, fish 
who is a different Jennifer than the director of uh, wildlife. So two Jennifer's uh, directors that have different things. So the hierarchy within uh, FLNRORD is really same people. Right. Now, I read that, I think that the hunting and fishing outfitters, they contributed nearly $2.7 billion of the country's GDP. I think that was in 2017. And they supported over 37,000 jobs. BC, it was, I think they created over 2,500 jobs and generated $191 million to the province's economy. Now, I know a lot of resident hunters have mixed feelings when it comes to the outfitter industry. Um, you know, some, like myself, they completely support uh, the outfitters in this province and I think that some maybe feel that that they're taking a game away from them. Can we maybe talk about like the effects the outfitters have on the economy? Uh, Your your, uh, economic numbers are bang on. Um, That was a recent study that we did through the Canadian Federation of Outfitter Associations. So that's across Canada. And then we tried to break out, you know, the hunting piece. And then I I guess it's just like anything, you know, if, if we do this properly, you know, if we work on growing the pie uh, you know, which has been talked about a lot and start, stop arguing over the piece that you get. And I think we've done that now. Unfortunately, that took 10 years of fighting between GABC and the BCWF. I don't think that advanced any environmental landscape level, land use, uh, any kind of protections, any kind of conservation initiatives on the ground. I think that when you kind of, when you're in the ring, you're not really worried and you're not really watching what's going on around outside. And I think that, you know, really we've seen decline in some, actually too many wildlife populations. In, and I'm really pleased that, you know, our executives are starting to talk, trying to find alignment, trying to, you know, re, you know, get, get over all that thing. I think, you know, I, I think there's some hard feelings that have been there, uh, but at the end of the day, you know, the outfitters are on the landscape. They are residents. They do have a, you know, they're all small family businesses. In some cases, you know, one of the most stable or long time employers in, in small towns. And, you know, and, and so I get to represent people from not so much from Vancouver, but you pick a place, whether that be Atlin uh, or Muncho Lake or, you know, the, these uh, Nacusp, you, you, yeah, your people are coming from these places that most Vancouver folks have no idea where they are, what's going on or how diverse it is or what the issues are. So I, I think there's room for us all to play uh, play together, to work together. You know, I was a member of the BC Wildlife Federation long before I joined uh, GOABC and I'll be a member long after. I encourage anyone to get involved uh, in something that they're passionate about, like hunting, uh, like Dave Ryder did. Join a club, get informed, figure out what's going on, be knowledgeable, and then, you know, take action uh, on whatever you uh, whatever you don't don't like and how to improve uh, where we are with our wildlife. The, the harvest that the outfitters take really is, is yeah. not an impediment to, to hunters. I almost no, no, exactly. I almost never I, see one, right? So yeah, well, exactly. And I, like you said, they it's local business. And you know, I'm a small business owner. I have a construction company here in Kelowna, and sometimes we have contractors, clients that are from Alberta, Calgary, Edmonton area. They're they're coming here to Kelowna to to catch the, the real estate boom. And, you know, that money that they're making isn't going back into this province. Whereas, you know, like the guide outfitters, they're all from this province. That's out of town money coming directly into this province and staying in this province. They're supporting hotels. They're supporting local restaurants, local mom and pop archery shops, local mom and pop gun shops. So yeah, I mean, you know, it's just that's that money's coming into this country, into this province, and it's staying in this province and it's getting distributed back out 
through the province, not only through the amount of jobs that it creates, but, you know, with all that, that money is going back directly into this province, which myself, I think that's a great thing. I mean, you know, if it was reversed where that money somehow was leaving this province, then I can see guys having an issue with it. Um, maybe a little selfish when you say that these guys are taking the game away. You know, hopefully, hopefully over time, we can kind of change that persona of the outfitter industry. Well, I mean, I sure hope so. I mean, you can't change the past, but I think there's plenty of opportunity and there has been a lot of work done from the outfitting community, uh, whether we're talking about prescribed fire or conservation work or outreach or uh, just uh, initiatives to help advance uh, wildlife populations um, and do restoration work and contribute, you know, both volunteer and uh, monies, th- you know, through things like HCTF and licenses and tags. And, and it's not enough, but we, we definitely uh, think we do our part. And um, I think working together, we're... Um, you know, with the hunting community and the guiding community, I think we're in a better place. Yeah. Yeah. And and that's one thing Dave and I talked about on the last episode was just uh, more unity within, you know, the hunting organizations and working together for a greater common goal than everybody just working on what, on what they need or what they feel their interests are. And so hopefully with what Dave and I talked about and what he's working on, we can get that. Yeah. And, and Kevin, that's what I appreciate about you know, this and, and, and your show and, 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 uh, and others get the opportunity to talk about these things and uh, get them out there and, you know, uh, provide some facts, uh, answer questions, uh, get rid of the myths and uh, find ways to, if someone says it, uh, David Brannick, a friend of mine of the Kootenays, he's an outfitter, he says it well, he says, uh, we all look at each, each other differently when the water hole's drying up. And, and I, and I think when you think about moose and many places and elk in many places and mule deer specifically, you know, there's cause for concern. And um, then you look at uh, resource extraction on the land. Um, You look at, uh, you know, uh, activities on the land. You know, I'm old enough to remember the times when there was no quads and really no snow machines and they couldn't get to where they get to. Um, I was on my first quad with tracks uh, this winter to pull my moose out. I can tell you that I was absolutely amazed how that machine went up a mountainside in 10 inches of snow. It was pretty slick. So, you know, um, less sanctuaries, more roads, you know, more logging, uh, more cut lines, uh, more people. And I think that we need to look hard at, you know, not only other sectors, but, but ours as to what we do and how we do it and, and make decisions that put wildlife first. And if we start thinking about the wildlife and putting wildlife first, um, I think that, um, I think that the, over time, it'll be a much better place and there'll be abundant game for everybody. Yeah, well, exactly. I mean, all the issues that, that hunters are faced with and I, um, the outfitters are faced with the exact same issue. So, I mean, if, again, if everybody works together and supports each other, if we all work to one common goal, we're going to get a lot more accomplished than we are with, with focusing on issues that might be somewhat trite when you think of the big picture. 100%, my friend, 100%. Moving on to a couple projects you guys have been working on. Uh, one in particular caught my eye, the Who Cares Project. Can you tell me a bit about that? Yeah, you bet. Um, who cares? So back to funding. I, I love. I yeah, I love the name too. By the way, it, you know, it, <laughs> it makes you stop and read it because you know there's there's so much stuff out there. I mean, if you're googling yeah. anything or if you're looking on Facebook, there's just so much stuff, and you got to cycle through everything. So a name does a lot for it, and right away you stop. You're intrigued a little bit right away. Who cares? So. Oh, good. Whoever came up with that? Was that you that came up? Whoever came up with it, that was pretty creative. Thank you. Um, um, you know, 
you know, we don't get all the credit. You know, wh- where does this come from? To be honest, uh, there was a conversation, Kyle and I, Kyle, Kyle. from uh, Stetler from the Wild oh, Sheep okay, Society. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I, and we were talking about exactly what, you know, you and I are talking about now. It's around the image of hunters, the role of hunting, you know, how can we improve what kind of the, you know, the general opinion, um, you know, and so uh, just interesting that we, or I guess I, um, had the opportunity to talk to some of the people involved with Hug a Hunter out of Colorado. Yeah, just a quick story for a sec. A gentleman by the name of Dick out of Colorado, uh, he, uh, I was asking him some questions and he went off on me about how corny, how stupid, how much of a waste of money it was and, and how he just thought that that was just a ridiculous campaign. And I said, well, it's not for you, Dick. And he just kind of looked at me and, and um, I said, it's not R3. It's not recruitment, retention. Um, I don't know what the th- third R is, um, reactivation. You know, it's not, it's not about that. It's not about converting anti-hunters into hunters. It's not. It's about talking to the, what they call the 70% in the middle that don't hunt, that typically live in Vancouver, um, that are concerned about wildlife. And, and if the only narrative they hear is hunters are bad yeah. and we're on global taking a bunch of shots and it doesn't matter whether it's bears or anything else and something's wounded or, you know, that's their only exposure to hunters that, and that gets ingrained in these folks all the time. That, that's not a good place to be. So, you know, after uh, a long conversation with Dick and then, you know, I started thinking about it and talking to people about it and, you know, Kyle and I started talking about what that might look like. And we originally wanted the BCWF, uh, the Wild Sheep Society and GOBC to do, to do jointly, do it together and do it uh, with government. And we do definitely think that government has a role to play here, but government, you know, wasn't that excited about it. And to be honest, the BCWF thought it was government's responsibility. So Kyle said, well, I think we're going to take a run at it. And I said, well, I think we're going to take a run at it. So the Wild Sheep Society came up with a program that you probably heard of called One Campfire. Mm-hmm. And and I tip my hat to those guys. I mean, yes. um, you know, well done, a uh, very good program. Uh, and, and likewise, you know, we uh, wanted our own nuances around it, our own style. You know, we hired a filming firm and PR firm and, and started going the path down the path to understand what social media was. Uh, I am not an expert in that area. Started to try to put some imagery out there around community uh, conservation and consumption, which are kind of core pillars around who cares. Uh, we, we landed on mostly, you know, one minute little vignettes, uh, bite size. Uh, we're on Instagram. Uh, we're on Facebook. We're on YouTube. And if you haven't had a chance to check them out, check them out. And we, we hope they're not as corny as the Hug a Hunter. But if you want to check those out, check those out as well. And I don't know what the future will look like. This was, uh, you know, a multi-year campaign that GABC started. And uh, it's been enormously successful. Also blessed to have one of my staff, Brenda. Uh, she's done a phenomenal job. And then, you know, we're all learning. Um, you know, the, the board has a PR team in combination. I think that it's showed, you know, just mind-blowing results. We had no idea the followership and the responses and the inter- interaction that we'd have with non-hunters. And if you're and if you're a hunter and you haven't seen who cares, that's okay because it's not for you. And I'm not an expert on geofencing, but we try to geofence between Hope, Whistler, and Victoria. And if you're in that triangle, 
uh, we send you information and it's all around who cares. And it's all around people that we think are open-minded. Yes, we get hunters that follow us. Yes, we get outfitters that follow us. And yes, the organic, uh, you know, kind of growth is is neat. Uh, but we are really f- focused on urban, greater Vancouver folks, that's 70% in the middle. And we're not trying to make them hunters. Absolutely not. We're just trying to provide another narrative, have them think, you know, whatever that soccer mom that, you know, has a bunch of kids that's, you know, uh, wants to make sure and she's concerned about wildlife and doesn't see any that, hey, somebody cares. And we're not saying it's only us. Absolutely not. We do. And we know others do, too. And um, so that's the that's the thought process. So if you haven't watched the vignette, please go to Who Cares BC. We're pretty easy to find. It's on the GOBC website as well. We have our YouTube channel. Subscribe to that. And then, um, you know, so we, we put out a new vignette uh, every week as well as other posts with other informations and, and other facts. Yeah, we, we continue to launch them and we continue to be just uh, pleasantly surprised at the, at the response. Yeah. Really, no, really it, cool. Yeah, no, it, it's great. And that's something that I think we should all uh, strive, basically bridging the gap between hunters and non-hunters and, and having coordinated efforts to, you know, achieve results on, on the wildlife issues in this province. One issue I guess we're all facing right now is the current pandemic. What sort of impact has COVID had on the outfitter industry? Uh, I'm not sure which ad- adjective you use. Massive, um, destructive, um, enormous. It's, uh, uh, as you touched on earlier, you know, 90... Uh, 90, someone, 95% of our clientele are international travelers. You know, there's a, there's a, a bunch there as well that are Canadian, but by, uh, by and large, you know, really the lion's share is, is uh, international. And of those, most of those are the U.S. And, you know, and, you know, the pand- pandemic is what it is. You know, um, the borders were closed, I think it was March the 20th. You know, we, we thought at that time that, you know, it was probably unlikely that we were going to have a spring bear season. And, and as we started watching what was happening around the world, we realized that, you know, probably not going to have a fall either. Um, you know, UABC predicted that quite early on. I actually got some criticism around that, to be honest. Um, but now as everyone's kind of come to the reality as to, you know, oh my God, this is here. This is a big deal. You know, I, I think we're going to lose our spring as well. I don't think that we're going to get the vaccines uh, out and distributed well enough till the summer. Mm-hmm. Um, for So for those of you, you know, that we're planning on a, a spring bear season, uh, as a resident, you may be able to do that. Um, but as a non-resident, this will be our second spring, not, uh, not guiding, guiding any clients for black bears. Yeah, that's got to be a, that's got to be a big, big hit to the industry. That's spring black bear. Um, hopefully that. Is huge. About 40, 45% of the non resident tags are for Black Bear. Wow. Yeah, no, yeah. it's huge. That's huge. So, how has it been with Canadians stepping up and filling the holes for, for the Americans that couldn't make it? Yeah, really tough, actually, to be honest. So, I mean, some were able to, but really the biggest challenge was these 30 day extensions. So, mm-hmm. you know, you got to have horses in the mountain, in the plains field, guides hired, you know, cooks, wranglers, camp ready, firewood cut, trails, you know, blah, 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 right? The whole, like, ready to go, engines running. Yeah. You know, and then, you know, August 21st says not closed for another month. And then so everyone stays waiting, mm-hmm. what's going to happen? And then, you know, September, you know, 21st gets extended to October 21st. So the, the ability to pivot to, to Canadians or BC folks, 
really, really tough because you have contracts in place. You know, we're not like Butchard Gardens or Capilato Suspension Bridge where it just, mm-hmm. you know, people come and do whatever they want to do. No, no, no. You've got a contract with dates uh, and times and and you're you're in that week or 10 days or 14 days, depending on who you're hunting with and what you're hunting. And so you, you can't cancel those contracts on hope that you're going to fill another one. And so with it with a Canadian or a British Columbia resident. So it was it was extremely tough. And I think that those 30 day rolling extensions were an unintended consequence. You know, and, you know, we made some appeals both provincially and federally for uh, something we called alternate self-isolation. Uh, we're pleased that in the Yukon that we were able to get that through the provincial health officer and the MP and the federal government. And so really what that was, um, and of course, if you reflect back to that time, uh, the Yukon only were allowing BC folks to go uh, to go there to hunt. Um, but we, we were able to successfully convey a story where uh, why wouldn't you let folks come in and have them self-isolate while they hunt or fish and they can be on the top of a mountain or on a lake somewhere. Yeah, right? there's, there's this idea that you have to be in cell phone service and you have to be in the local hotel for two weeks ordering room service is absolutely ridiculous. Um, yeah. Logic yeah, prevailed in the Yukon. So no movement here yet on that. And, and and to be honest, we've, you know, we've lost the season and we've, we've shifted and really now our conversations are around uh, a vaccinated traveler, a rapid test at the border. And um, then what you've got obviously is only healthy tourists coming in. And we think that's the next cohort that we should be talking about that would be able to come across. Yeah, it's tough. Absolutely. I mean, for spring bear, it's going to be tough. Um, they have a vaccination coming out, but like you said, you look at the number of vaccines coming out compared to the population, it's going to take a while for everybody to be vaccinated. And I mean, the population in the United States is 10 times what it is here in Canada. So it's going to take a long time to vaccinate all the people. And I hope the health officers recognize the rapid testing as a suitable alternative to self-isolation. I guess, I mean, obviously if they can show some proof of vaccination, then I guess it's, you know, it's, you don't even have to worry about it at all. But uh, yeah, I mean, it uh, it's tough. It, it sucks. It's, it is what it is for now, I guess. For sure. And, um, you know, Dr. Bonnie Henry has done a great job, I think, protecting British Columbians and that's her job. Right. And so I kind of, I'm a sports guy and I kind of think of her as kind of the defensive captain. Mm-hmm. I don't believe she's the captain of the team and I'm not sure who our offensive captain is, but if we, if we have an offensive captain, I don't know if that's the new Rick uh, Golmack, the new MLA uh, responsible for uh, cross-border travel specifically with Washington state. Uh, I don't know if it's him. I don't know if it's our new tourism minister. I, I, I'm not sure who maybe, maybe it's, you know, maybe this is equally a federal issue. Um, so maybe it's our, uh, Melanie Jolie, our, our federal tourism minister, or maybe it's somebody else, but I, I really think that, you know, we need an offensive captain that says, okay, uh, this is our plan. Cause we, we don't hear a lot about the plan. We hear a lot about the, you know, 6,000, you know, pardon me, 6 million vaccines. And we're issuing to these people first. And these are the two types and these are the challenges. And, you know, I'm not a doctor nor an expert on any of that kind of stuff, but I trust that on the defensive side, they've got that nailed and, you know, and she's done a great job on the offensive side. I'm not sure, you know, we need some courage and we need a plan there. And I'm not sure who's leading that, but, you know, we, you know, um, if you're not vaccinated and we don't have a rapid test, it's reliable. Fair enough. 
right? Then the borders, you know, it's it's going to be tough. Uh, and I and I don't think anyone in the tourism industry, and obviously it's not only us. There's a lot of others in the tourism industry that are hurting and want that vac- vaccine to be safe and distributed quickly and uh, get to herd immunity and get this under control. Yeah. Um, you know, other countries, you know, if you go to Africa, certain African countries, you get a vaccine for yellow fever. That's it has been going on for, you know, many, many years. Uh, mm-hmm. It's just if you're going to go there, you get a certificate. You know, and for those of you that have traveled to different places, some of them are optionals. You know, some of them are not. Right. And so um, I think that it, we can quite easily get a, a offensive plan that that's around vaccinated travelers who can come into Canada and that can be done safely. Um, and if there is a reliable rapid test at the border, then that'd be just another layer of, uh, of safety that I think that uh, would make sure that all Canadians, right, are comfortable that, you know, if they see a, you know, a Washington plate that he's, uh, he or she is safe to be here and vaccinated. And, you know, we're, we're well on our way to getting through this pandemic. Yeah, for sure. I've often wondered, how is it dealing with elected officials when Sitting on the opposite side of the table, you represent a group or organization that profits from the death of animals. Are those officials flipping and do they sequester to your concerns or? Um, uh, not, not really in government. No, I, I, you know oh. what I mean? Most folks in government, um, you know, if we're talking about, you know, uh, staff or bureaucrats, they, you know, most of them have been there. They understand biology. They understand their role. Um, of public service and typically take a very open mind. So I, I, I really, I really don't see that. Um, the the MLAs that are elected, they they generally play to their constituency. They have a platform, mm-hmm. and and while I'm disappointed that none of the parties had enough about uh, wildlife in their platforms, you know, I am pleased that I am cautiously optimistic that this together for wildlife that the NDP is mm-hmm. is uh, funding will uh, produce results. I am. Cautiously optimistic. So let's just leave that there. Uh, I've been around this a long time to to know that there's going to be a lot of resistance to that, both in their structure and how they make decisions. So just really quick on that, you've got a district manager that makes decisions around logging and roads and cutting permits, all that kind of stuff. And you've got a different regional manager that's responsible for wildlife decisions. And so while these are two different people in two different silos, you know, fundamentally we have a problem. So we have a a governance issue we need to fix. Um, I am supportive of more funding, but you know, moose or white-tailed deer or elk or whatever you want to talk about, they don't eat that stuff. So we really need, we need habitat and we need a, a balance of predator prey on the landscape and not this BS around alternate prey. If you want to get me pissed off, you start talking to me about that. I mean, this primary prey or alternate prey stuff is just a, oh. I, I, you know, that I'll fill a whole <laughs> show on that. And I have a lot of respect for Rob Zaroya. So I'm just going to say that right now, I, you know, <clears throat> you want to get my blood pressure up. That's how you get me talking about this because that's just, yeah, I don't, I don't yeah. even know where these, I don't even, uh, yeah. I, speechless. I don't, yeah, we won't even go down that, that rabbit hole. But. That's another podcast all <laughs> on its own. <laughs> yeah. So you uh, mentioned, so you, one thing there, you, you mentioned the, the initiative the NDP is committed to. Can you just give me a brief on what that is? It, uh, so it's a desire to be more inclusive. 
Um, so the traditional stakeholders are um, the BC Wildlife Federation, the uh, the GOABC, and and the BC Trappers Association. And then to some degree, there's been some expansion of that to include others like the Wild Sheep Society, which we're mm-hmm. thankful for their wisdom and their input. So what the NDP has done is really said, well, that's fine, but you know we want a much wider catchment of opinions and specifically around habitat. And so you know there's been some you know, groups that are in the conversation uh, that are on the ministers, well, the former ministers, Wildlife Advisory Council, you know, traditionally, I would say maybe weren't listened to enough. And not all those groups are anti-hunting. A lot of them think the same as we do around habitat and habitat protection and land use and, and have the same concerns about, you know, logging and spraying of glyphosates and, and uh, free to grow and a bunch of other problems that we have in the forest industry. So, so, it, it, you know, I, I think that, you know, we've got some unlikely allies there. And I think that, you know, um, I don't know if we're in desperate times yet, but we, you know, we, you know, we see kind of that desperate times, desperate measures. And, you know, we're talking to folks that we hadn't talked to before and that didn't really agree with us. And so uh, we're hopeful that things that we want to do change, whether we're talking about FERPA, so the Forest and Range Practices Act, or free to grow, or spraying of uh, herbicides, that those things actually get addressed and the forest industry gives a shit. Uh, sorry for my RFP friends out there. I, you know, um, I'm not a big fan of uh, professional reliance. And I think that quite honestly, under the auspices of Pine Beetle, that what's happened uh, in this province is nothing short of disgusting. So, and when you make such large clear cuts, uh, you change the temperature, uh, you change the quality of the forage, you get more forest fires and more flooding. And I don't think we need to go into that and see, you know, example after example as to how we've seen more forest fires and more flooding in this province. So, yeah. uh, you know, I, 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 I really see that the forest industry has an opportunity to pull up its socks and so far has been extremely reluctant to do so. Without habitat, we don't have wildlife. And the change of habitat has really uh, enhanced the ability uh, for predators to be effective. And, um, you know, they don't burn the calories. They have more pups, um, puts uh, huge pressure on recruitment. Um, wildlife, wildlife management is tough, right? Yeah, um, we're talking about killing stuff and we're talking mm-hmm. about, you know, jobs. And we're, we're talking about really big things that have consequences. And, yes. you know, and, and so that's why some politicians don't want to make the tough decision. Yeah. Right. Yeah. They want to find a way around it. You know, they don't want to do a wolf call till there's no caribou. They don't want to do a wolf call. So they push people into something called, you know, do some work on alternate prey or primary prey. Why? Because we won't want to do it. Well, they don't work unless you have a wolf call that, can, that, that works with it. And you can look and it's over and over and over again. The numbers out of the Tweed's mirror around the wolves taken out of there, 30% of the population is caribou calves. 30% before the wolf call, zero. Well, is there any surprise why the caribou went from whatever it was 5,000 to 500 or whatever the number is? I don't have those exact numbers, but yeah, I don't even think that many, but yeah, no kidding. Yeah. And, and then so, and you know, the work that they've done in the piece, just fantastic results on caribou and can't be done, whether you like it or not, can't be done without predator removal. If you yeah. don't have a balance on the landscape, um, it's well. Inaction is a choice. If you choose not to do anything about the wolves, um, 
the consequence for that is you're going to lose uh, caribou. And if you don't care about that, well, then you're going to lose moose and elk. Mm-hmm. If you don't care about that, you lose, you know, mule deer and white-tailed deer, right? And then, you know, and you're losing cattle. So sooner or later, someone's going to care. Someone should care. Yeah, definitely. Um, but uh, thanks for touching on that. That definitely clears it up for me and anybody else listening. I know I probably would have had a few questions about that. So thanks for clarifying that. But yeah, when it comes to the management of predators in this province, I definitely feel that the, that the province has taken a reactive rather than a proactive approach. I feel, you know, um, I mean, I get it. It's a tough topic. And I, you know, I feel are kind of spineless when it comes to this issue. And I kind of feel that they just, uh, you know, they're avoiding the issue altogether, afraid from backlash from opposing parties. So, but uh, hopefully that will change. And again, it's with everybody banding together and, and, uh, you know, making their voice heard. And, you know, it's something I wish I would have got involved with maybe a little earlier in life. It's only been in about the last five years that I got involved with these, the issues in this province. And I kind of, you know, growing up in this province, I always just took it for granted. It was always there. I mean, time I could walk, I was fishing. So, uh, but yeah, this, the state of our wildlife and in this province is definitely, is definitely in trouble. And I don't know how we got here, you know, to blame myself. I, I should have maybe got involved when I was younger, but it wasn't until my kids and I started doing stuff with my kids that I started to, to take more of an interest in it. So hopefully moving forward, we can, again, we can all work together, hunters and, and guide outfitters and everybody else and non-hunters can all band together and, and work for the same common goal. Well, it's, it's one thing I say quite a bit is, uh, sorry for the, my business speak, but uh, KPI, so a key performance indicator is healthy wildlife. And so if you have a healthy ecosystem, you have a healthy environment, you have a healthy forest with, with, with uh, good habitat and, and uh, clean air and good water you have good populations, yeah. right? And so instead of, you know, trying to figure out how we plant the most two by fours and how, you know, how fast we can get those, you know, uh, milled and sold, why don't we think about, okay, uh, change what we measure you on, you know? Um, but instead instead of maximum stems per hectare everywhere all the time, and rather than it's pine, 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 why don't we say, okay, we're going to allow natural regen here and we're going to think about wildlife here and we're going to plant some deciduous and we're going to do some different things and we're going to deactivate some roads and we're going to provide some sanctuaries and we're going to do some things a little bit differently and have government say, yeah, that's okay. Yeah. Right. And, and the forest industry say, yeah, we want to do better. But right now, forest industry really doesn't want to do better. With all due respect, they say jobs, 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 and government holds the line and we don't get any change. And that here we are. And I think now, while I, you know, I believe kind of that outfitters are the, you know, the canary in the mine shaft, so to speak for this, when the harvest start going down and people start complaining and they start seeing, wow, there's, you know, there's, there's no white tailed deer in the Kootenays anymore. And wow, the elk are down. And then, you know, the moose are down in some places and the caribou are down and you know what I mean? And you start, people start going, wow. Yeah. And, and then it's not just hunters that are noticing it. It's other people in the backcountry that are hiking and are going out mm-hmm. there and don't see anything uh, unless you're in Oak Bay. Uh, my, my two daughters are going to UVic and they sh- show me photos almost daily of big bucks in their backyard. I yeah. just can't believe it. I've, I see more pictures of good, good bucks, um, you know, from my daughters that I do for my hunting buddies. Now that's, you know. And mm-hmm. they're going to school. They're not hunting. That's just, you know. <laughs> yeah. Well, here in Kelowna. <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah, exactly. And 
Yeah. I mean, everybody, I think it's evident everywhere. Every, this year on my mule deer hunt, it took me five days to find a four point mule deer and my wife sending me pictures, you know, there's a 170 buck sitting in my front driveway. Yeah. Blows your mind. But yeah, that's evidence of it right there. And, you know, that's why I think that uh, all hunters, they need to, you know, they, they just need to open up because the guide offers are truly concerned about what's going on in this province. A friend of mine there, he's, he guides he has, I think, two goat allocations, one sheep and unlimited elk. You know, he'd be fine with to a total reduction in elk and elk and the Kootenays going to an LEH just so they can recover their numbers. Uh, he's seen significant decrease in numbers where the burn was. I think it was in 2017 down there. But uh, hopefully, again, hopefully moving forward, we can we can all work together here. And Yeah, I, I, I agree. And I think from a stakeholder perspective, that when there's more that unites us than separates us, right? And when we start getting into, well, I'm an archery hunter, yeah, yeah, but you know, you use a crossbow or you use a compound bow, or you know, you're a guide or you shoot, you know, the first buck you see or the biggest buck you see, we start splitting our positions. None of that stuff's good. Yeah, we, yeah, you exactly. Know? We shouldn't be splitting hairs. We're a group. We're all hunters. Hunters should stand together and band together because we face enough backlash as it is. The anti-hunting community is growing faster than the hunting community is. So, you know, I mean, outfitters they receive more backlash than any hunter does regarding the anti-hunters. They're an easy target. They're making money off the death of an animal. So, yeah, I mean, it, yeah. Yeah, it, uh, it was interesting. I had a, the former minister tell me that, you know, Scott, all you guys are divided on your, you know, on your wildlife issues and what you want. All the anti-hunting groups all want the same thing. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, in, I think it was in 2017, 2017, uh, we went on a family trip. We took our kids down to SeaWorld and down to the zoo and stuff. And we were staying at a hotel. In one of the rooms, the big room down there in the hall, there was an anti-hunting group down there. And then, so I kind of just peeked in and I was, you know, I was eavesdropping on the conversation. And then some people were asking me about, you know, and I just played ignorant and, and just kind of hid, you know, my, you know, my, my true identity and, and, and thoughts about hunting and stuff. And I just wanted to see what their perspective on was it. And there was people from Pacific Wild, there was people from the Wildlife Defense League, and they had one common goal, and that was shutting hunters the fuck down. Mm. They didn't care about, you know, the different interests that each group has. They just had one common goal, and that was getting rid of hunting altogether. So like Dave said the other day was, you know, the reach that we would have if all hunters and all hunting groups and all, all you know, fishing outfitters and everybody just stood together, we'd, yeah. we'd have a huge voice and, you know, we'd get twice as much achieved. And Yeah. And, and um, you know, so I, I, I don't like losing. I'm, a, I'm not one of those guys that uh, I tell my kids to, you know, be gracious in loss. It's tough. Yeah. <laughs> as I, get I hear older, you. I'm I hear little, you. I'm a little better at it, but always been quite competitive and, you know, continuing to lose around these hunting conversations and now I'm speaking specifically of grizzly bears and to hear friends friends of mine hunters that I know they don't care oh, I don't hunt a grizzly bear well I never got a draw it doesn't matter you know you know we don't eat the meat whatever that I don't care right yeah um and the anti-hunting groups they didn't miss a beat you know what I mean it's like okay mm -hmm. thanks for that and we you know, continue yeah. on. And now we're going to go after whatever we think is the next lowest hanging fruit, right? So they went after yeah. hunting with hounds. They went after cats. Yep. They went after wolves, uh, specifically on the, in the Great Bear Rainforest, right? They're just well, they're they're fundraising. Yeah. They're, they're not stopping. And nope, so, they, exactly. so, right. So you used to say, well, maybe I don't use hounds and, you know, or I don't care to hunt predators or I don't hunt bears. And I'm like, okay, so just, they're going to keep coming. So yeah. when, when does it affect you? Right? Well, so exactly. 
Yeah. No. Yeah. You black bears. No. Okay. Wolves. No. Okay. The moose. Sheep. When yep. when do you lose a species that's important to you? And so, you know, really pleased that one of our members basically um, put a stake in the ground and said, "Night on my watch." So yeah. Ron Fleming, you know, has started a class action, and he just says, "Not on my watch." And Great. we are very supportive of that. And yeah, that's awesome. And you know, even even to be honest, even in, in the outfitting community, only fifty percent of us have uh, grizzly bear quota, and and the other fifty percent are, you know, are we sure? Like uh, this is the hill to die on. And yeah. I can assure you, uh, we will be. Yeah. And um, so we are thankful. Some of the SCI chapters in BC have uh, provided support to to Ron and and his case, and and um, that's fantastic. And I think that whether you're a, a grizzly bear hunter or not, you should be appalled at the decision. Mm-hmm. Anytime that we're electing public officials to make bad decisions based on emotion without any science. To be honest, I actually quite like the premier. I think he's uh, actually a, a pretty good guy, but you know, I, you know, I just, I still think he made a bad decision. Yeah. Well, and, I don't believe that the anti-hunters groups really give a shit about the grizzly bear. I mean, they hate hunting bottom line. Yeah. I mean, it started, it started with the grizzly bear and then it went to training hounds for cougar hunting and the Kootenays that got shut down. And yeah, it's just one hurdle after another. And that's all they see. They just have goals set and they don't stop. And yeah, I mean, it was interesting. One of the debates that we had here uh, internally was whether or not we should pull the meat out of grizzly bears, like it should be with any other species. Yeah. Uh, huge debate. And is it edible? Absolutely. Yes, it is. Does it carry uh, trichinosis? Yeah, uh, it does. Black bears as well. And so does pork. So as long as you cook it to 160 degrees C, then you kill the worm and you're good to go. You know, but there was a lot of conversations around that. Me personally, I think that if we were taking the meat out three, four years ago, uh, so three, four years prior to 2017, I don't think it would have the same sting for those in, in greater Vancouver. And I don't, I, I think we'd be still hunting bears. I mean, you, you yeah. could argue with me on that one, but Mark Duda is a, is a great uh, researcher, done phenomenal work and study after study. And from everything that we can see, it's exactly the same in uh, British Columbia and Canada as it is in the U.S. around acceptance of hunting and the different types of hunting. And, and, and whatever your definition of trophy hunting is, that is the lowest uh, lowest accepted. And then you go from there. And if you're hunting for food, it's the highest accepted. So yeah. I've had grizzly bear meat before. It was fantastic. Not every bear is going to be fantastic. Uh, just like not every moose is fantastic. But I think that we need, uh, and that's one of the pillars of of who cares. It's a really round consumption. And so we really want to be talking about different ways to cook, different recipes. I'm not sure how many recipe books we have at GOABC. I think we have three different ones. You know, in our hunting magazine, we put out a column with uh, Tammy at Saucy Outdoors, and she does a piece on, you know, her experiences and her recipes. And I think that that's really important. I think that I, I heard it from Pacific Wild and others right out of the gate that, you, you know what I mean? Because they took the same approach. You, you don't you don't eat grizzly bear meat. Then they just yep. said, well, you don't eat black bear meat. And there was a yeah. huge <laughs> resistance to that. Yeah. And I, I think it kind of stopped it right there in its tracks. Yeah. And so uh, I think that people should be you know, as, as eager to show your, whatever you want to call your trophy shot, you should also be showing your table fare. And yeah, if you and, do that, yeah. I think that that um, and uh, I th- will I th- help. Yeah. And I think that's changed a lot. You know, I, you do see a lot of, a lot of people now uh, putting on social media, the dinner they cooked and you know how mm. good it is. And there's a lot more talk about knowing where your food comes from and all that stuff. So, you know, I think that's a great approach to, to it as well. So, 
Yeah, we get some great champions we can look at. Dylan at Eat Wild is one. Yep. Um, you know, there, there's a couple out of the U.S. that, that are great as well. Uh, you know, um, you know, talk, talk about what I tell people. Yeah. You, you don't want to sit. If you're a nanny hunter, uh, you, you don't want to yeah. sit beside me in the plane. Let me tell you. Um, <laughs> you know, because I've got you, right? Yeah. And you're going to hear it, right? And, and I start with opening a hunting magazine. And, you know, and, uh, you know, I, I would encourage everybody to talk about yes. uh, hunting, right? Uh, talk about who you take hunting, talk about mm-hmm. the skills you have, the experience. I mean, some of the best experiences with my dad, with my brothers are on hunting trips, you know. Absolutely. Um, yep. And I, and, I, and I think that if, if there's anything that, you know, hunters take away from this is it's okay. Yep. Um, uh, talk about hunting. Exactly. Um, yeah. Don't, and, don't be ashamed of it. Don't try to avoid it avoid the conversation be honest about what you do and what you love to do and share it with other people and then hopefully if they're impartial to hunting maybe they'll they'll change their perspective on it but it starts with a conversation it starts yeah. from everybody talking together all hunters and all outdoor people fishermen everybody hikers all talking together and working together and just like you said it just starts with a conversation yeah to tell your story you don't have to have the facts about grizzly bear ecology or reproductive rates or any of that kind of stuff tell your story you know i hunt with my daughter son father you know we go here it's a great experience you know we've been doing it for x number of years and talk about the camaraderie talk about why you love to do it and yeah, yeah, they may exactly. not agree but at least they're going to go huh you know he cares she cares you know yeah. they're they're concerned about wildlife and i think that if you get people to say huh and just pause just for a sec uh, before they say, you know, you know, stop the grizzly bear hunt or stop trophy hunting, whatever that is, stop this, stop yep. that. No, 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 no. Just like it's, hey, you know what? I, you know, I, I met a guy, met a lady. You know, they hunted and, you know, they eat all the meat and, yep. seem to be pretty conscious and, you know, pretty, pretty solid person. And if yeah. you can get hunters exactly. to be th- seen as, you know, uh, caring about what they take, uh, I think that's a game changer. Yeah, absolutely. 100%. You know, the best, the best hunts I've ever had have been with my dad and, and my kids. I mean, like this year alone, I, I think I had seven tags I punched. And, you know, when I hunt for myself, again, I'm a very competitive per- person and my hunts are misery. But um, yeah, I mean, the, the most memories I have, is even as a child for myself, and I'm sure my dad and my mom will tell you the same thing that of us kids, when we were, when we were outdoors, we were fishing and hunting and and stuff like that. even with my brothers all, pretty much all my memories are, are sitting on the docks fishing and, and spending time with my brothers i don't yeah and and i think that yeah i'm not sure who did it there was a i don't know if it came out of pennsylvania first or somewhere else about uh, the true sportsman or the evolution of a hunter and i'm not trying to say that one stage of a hunter is better than another but i've many times told stories about the five uh, stages of hunter development fortunate that i got you know a, a family that you know, that we all hunt and we're, we're all in different stages. So I, you know, I talk about that shooting stage, how my youngest brother was most concerned about, you know, how big of a pile of empty shells did he have, right? That was his measure that he had a good trip. The brother closest in age to me, uh, he's all about, well, they call it the limiting out stage, but he's all about the meat, right? And so, you know, if it has horns, he's squeezing the trigger. He's got, you know, he's a big boy you know, six, five, two forty. Uh, and they got, you know, four big kids and they eat. So his motivation is meat. And the only reason that he would shoot a bigger buck over a smaller buck is there's more meat on it. (laughs) So I told him he's a trophy hunter and he's ready for the next stage. And he said, well, if a trophy has more meat, that's the one I'm shooting. Right. And, and so he's really about filling the tag and 
you know, not about antlers at all. And then the middle brother, you know, he's uh, been away from hunting for about 10 years and he's coming back into hunting and, you know, and he really, you know, wants to, you know, achieve something. He wants to shoot it, whatever you want to trophy is something to be proud of. I think. Yeah. Um, I call them memory. I I don't, you know, that, that word trophy, trophy hunt is to me, it's been bastardized by the Andy hunters. And I think that the word we can't use anymore so i call them i call them memory hunts but yeah anyway. oh, very, very, no fair enough I, I i i like that i mean at the end of the day whatever your motivation is hunting uh the next one is you know the method stage and i, I would argue that that's where i am because if there's any way that i can get out to hunt i will right so uh you know i own a bow i own a muzzleloader i own a crossbow I, you know i own a rifle and I'll, you know what i mean and i, I travel to hunt right so that that's kind of me i'm hunting all the time everywhere i'm thinking about hunting all the time draws in different places and how you know are we going to get drawn in saskatchewan or how are we going to hunt in washington state or whatever right and yeah. then it's where my dad is you know to be honest my dad wants to come with his sons and, and daughter and uh, and come hunting and he just wants to come for the camaraderie he doesn't he doesn't even want to shoot anything you know he's in that sportsman stage and he really you know the way dad thinks is he just he says well you know i want to be the camp cook yeah, and yeah, so no, the my joke, dad's the same way well yeah so it's well my dad doesn't know where the kitchen is except that's where the good food comes from right so now he wants to be the camp cook i'm like you can't cook anything so you know how's that gonna happen right <laughs> Uh, but no, and he just wants to be there with his, uh, with his family and he doesn't have to shoot anything and he's got the time and the resources. So he volunteers and he gives back and he does whatever he can do. And I think that hunters need to understand that we're all hunters, but yeah, we there are. are different, there are different styles and different oh, types within There's, our community. And yeah, and there just, is, there's so many nuances to hunting. I mean, it's, it's something that we, no matter how you look at it or how you approach it, there's, you know, it's something we all love to do and something taken from us, unfortunately. You know, when you look uh, at the U.S. election, when you look at the Canadian elections, when you look at the British Columbia elections, they're really, well, they changed the phone numbers. Now, I used to say it really was a 250-604 disconnect, but there really is a rural-urban, uh, you know, kind of difference of opinion uh, who's connected to wildlife. I think people are concerned. I'm not saying that people that live in Vancouver or uh, Greater Victoria aren't, don't love wildlife or are concerned about wildlife. They absolutely do. They just might not, you know, see all that rural communities see. I think that as there's more and more people moving to cities, the rural communities need to be smarter in how we uh, communicate and how we message out. And I think that in a time when people talk about, um, you know, where your food comes from and they're worried about food security and the wild harvest and of the best uh, meat on the planet. I think that, you know, science is on our side. I think that we've got a lot of things on our side, but we have to be real with we kill shit. Yep. And and some people don't like that. Some people are okay with it and then they'll talk about it. But it, it, if you're taking a life, that's a big deal. Not everyone can do that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Uh, I'm going to let you go here pretty soon. But uh, moving forward in 2021, how do you see, what's the recovery for the outfitter industry look like? Uh, I believe that the international traveler will travel. I believe that there's pent up demand, me, myself, right? I mean, so what are we doing over Christmas? We canceled it. We're going nowhere. Uh, My kids are coming home and from university and they're going nowhere, right? And so, you know, we're doing our best. And I think that, you know, when I get the opportunity to fish and hunt, I'm gone. And so everything that we hear about from our from our clients, uh, from friends of mine, everyone's keen to go. Right. And so I don't see any problem with that. I, you know, I think I, I see that, you know, uh, safe travelers should be allowed into Canada. I think that they will come back to Canada. I think we will have 
good programs. I'm, I'm, I'm hopeful that, you know, we're, we have a, we have a summer fall season and the clients that come in are vaccinated. I, I would hope by then that most Canadians are vaccinated and we have this, um, this pandemic under control. And, and then we can get back to talking about the things we need to talk about in the together for wildlife. We need yeah, to we can focus objections. on the main, yeah, focus yeah. on the main issues. Yeah. Well, well hopefully, hopefully the floodgates open right up and I'm hoping all the personal and small outfitters, they'll be able to, you know, weather the storm of this year and, and bounce back. And, and hopefully in five years, this is just something we talk about and, and it doesn't have any long-term effects on, on the industry. And we can, again, we can all move forward and and achieve what we what we need to achieve yeah amen to that but uh anyway i want to thank scott coming on it's been a lot of fun yes no my pleasure kevin i really appreciate the opportunity and you know i i do find myself i do consider myself blessed i get to talk about fishing and hunting all day long every day so yeah that's some, great. some days a little bit more frustrating than others but pretty pretty lucky to be able to do something i love to do and, yeah uh, yeah i hear you there i mean people ask me why i started the podcast and you think about it a lot of it is just completely selfish you get to meet new people like yourself and and you get to talk about um you know hunting so it's great yeah absolutely okay man well uh, again thanks again and uh and we'll talk to you soon yep take care merry christmas you too. Bye.